You're listening to the Deepening Your Practice podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Deepening Your Practice. Deepening Your Practice is intended as an intermediate or advanced class, and what that really means is that I'm not going to offer basic meditation instruction. I expect you already to know that. That being said, if you find that I'm talking about something and you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'm happy to uh, answer any questions. Um, And I feel somewhat fraudulent because as we move through the Manual of Insight, which is what we're working on, we're going to begin to get to actual meditation. (coughs) We're in the chapter on development of mindfulness. And we talked about or have been talking about contemplation of the body, and I kind of want to wrap that up and move along. Um, The way that I like to describe it is you have the capacity to sense, you have the object that can be sensed, and when they meet, the consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. Um, But maybe a more traditional way of describing it would be that we have eye sensitivity, we have the visual object, uh, eye consciousness arises when they meet, and then the mental contact between eye and object, when we accurately understand visual contact, we know that it contacts a visual object, that it encounters visual objects. Um, so uh, if you remember these qualities, uh, when we accurately understand visual content, contact, we know that it, con- it contacts a visual object, which is the characteristic. Uh, that it encounters visual objects, which is the function, that it is the meeting of eye and visual object and sight, its manifestation, and that visual objects give rise to an approximate cause. So remember those, uh, those four uh, characteristics of phenomena. Um, <coughs> this is true of all sense gates. The, this this uh, eye sensitivity is uh, ear sensitivity, right? So then you have ear consciousness, you have mental contact between a sound wave and an ear, um, the same of all of the other senses. Is that making sense? So you have the capacity to sense. If you don't have the capacity to sense something, then you don't sense it. If there's no object to be sensed, even if you have the sensitivity to, to Uh, no consciousness arises because there's no contact. When there's content, contact, the sense that the consciousness of that particular sense gate arises and then uh, you know that that's what's happening. Um, So we were talking about sixfold equanimity, equanimity in each one of the sense gates including thinking. Thinking is is the way that you know what it is. So you have the sensing experience, you have the feeling quality of it, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then you have the thing that you make it into, the thinking aspect. Is that making sense? Um, in the moment that you sense, in the, in the purely sensing, there's no defilements, but then in the moment that you make it into something, then you fixate it, that's the moment when the defilements can come in. So uh, a highly concentrated mind uh, on that process of 
sensing and the quality of sensing and the making the sensing into something if you're fully engaged and equanimous in it then no defilements arise in the moment of fixating it but if the mind isn't uh, qualif- uh, isn't highly concentrated then defilements can arise <coughs> Technically, if you're sensing unpleasant or anything other than neutral, then, then is there a defilement present? There needn't be. You could have um, a uh, unpleasant sensation and be equanimous with it, and then no defilement would arise in relationship to it. But ultimately, all sensations neutral, right? Um, like that's well, it's conditioned. Um, so that, um, for instance, when you when you learn about heat and around uh, uh, around the possibility of burning yourself, I would think that that sensation probably remains unpleasant, mm-hmm. although you could come into equanimity with the unpleasantness of it. Mm-hmm. The <clears throat> the conditioned response to a sensing experience is hard to shift. So the Vedana aspect tends to be very stable, whereas the uh, uh, development or lack of development of equanimity around the sensing process is quite changeable. So it would be easy to have equanimity with an unpleasant sensing experience. Um. So, if there can be more loosening, does that mean the balance are present, or does that just mean that there's movement that can still occur? In Karnaka Samadhi, in the momentary concentration, in that moment of noting, is when you want to be free of defilement. So often in Karnaka Samadhi, in the moment of noting, the mind is pure, and then in the spaces between the defilements arise, which is different than the tranquility path where you develop a purified mind and then go into insight in the karnaka samadhi or momentary concentration insight practice it's only in that moment of noting that you're trying to be uh, free of defilements and then develop a momentum of noting that then carries that uh, defilement free concentrated mind forward is that making sense <coughs> So in the beginning of practice, you're just really trying to get the mind not to go all over the place because it's, you know, 97% of the time the mind is wandering and 3% of the time you're actually uh, focused on the technique. And then as that begins to improve, uh, I think what you'll notice if you've been practicing for a while is that sometimes your concentration is pretty good and sometimes it's like you never meditated before, right? (coughs) And that's pretty normal. Um, we're, we're householders, we're eas- we can get easily caught up and distracted and stressed and all of the other things that cause the mind to be jumpy. Um, but uh, I was talking to somebody today um, and they said that their baseline of, uh, of their capacity to concentrate is much, much greater than it was when they started and that they can settle in pretty quickly uh, after 10 or 15 minutes of practice in the mind and settle. They've been doing uh, largely just straight 
met a jhana for a couple of years, and so it, in 15 or 20 minutes they're approaching first jhana in, in, the, in the practice. Um, so you, you train the mind to do this, and eventually it develops a much greater capacity to do it, but still you're subject to the conditions of the present moment, and sometimes you can concentrate well, and sometimes you can't. Um, which doesn't mean that you should not practice in the times that you can't concentrate. It just means that you become equanimous with the fact that in that moment of practice you can't concentrate. And that's actually um, building the momentum of the practice. That you don't, you don't require anything and nothing disrupts you from the practice. <coughs> um, if you look at the, the map of the, the 16 stages, some um, areas of the map concentration is in increasing, 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 and then you get into other areas, and, you, and it would be in an indication of being in that area of the map that you can't concentrate. That if you could concentrate, that would mean that you weren't in that area of the map. So and if you look at the beginning, the first five stages is this ramping up into a high level of concentration, but once you fall into the sixth, stage, it would be representative of not being able to concentrate at all. Um, then six, seven, eight, which is fear, misery, and disgust, is this place of really um, um, the, uh, the fixation or the attachment or the clinging to the aspects of the solid self, of, of believing that things are permanent, that that you will not grow old and die, begin to come apart. And because it, it's so shattering to the nature of how you've constructed a sense of safety in the world that you don't, you don't concentrate there. And then you fall out of that into this desire to be delivered from suffering and then come out into the tenth stage, which is the re-observation and that's where the concentration begins to come back and then you come into this plateau of concentrated equanimity which is very pleasant to be in and then that lasts until the cycle ends or you have cessation and then boom there you are not not really able to concentrate too well again and and begin the the cycle again and so you get used to these these rhythms of that. So the mind is, you know, purified based on your capacity to concentrate and find equanimity. And when you can't, it's filled with defilements. In the beginning of practice, you have these moments. Shinzen uh, calls them the taste of purification, the moment of the purified mind that's equanimous and concentrated. And, uh, and then you lose it, whereas an arahat, say, would have that mind state all of the time and it's pretty unshakable. It's pretty permanent in, in, in that. In the meantime, as you progress along the path, you should be noticing that, uh, that your ability to function is improving and that your attention to the these artificial structures of, of safety uh, are less and less important, right? You don't need to uh, demand that other people uh, support your worldview because you see the, 
the, the artificial nature of that. You don't need to defend your sense of self as it arises in the moment because you know that it's just arising on those conditions and it isn't worthy of the, the energy of defense, um, that you can let it go and then reform it again over and over again and you watch those arisings and passings and then you don't you have less and less interest in uh, defending the sense of self because you see it's so temporary that it isn't worth doing and in that that sense that's how the practice changes how you respond in the world and then in those choices uh, having ch uh, chosen different strategies to respond to the conditions of the present moment, you move more into a virtuous cycle, away from a, a, a vicious uh, cycle. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways, I'm going to get some water as I'm talking one of the ways <clears throat> that you might think about it is um, you can only choose the things that you can see are there to choose. If you can't see that they're there to choose, you don't um, choose them. You don't think of, you don't think to choose them. Then our responses to conditioning, um, or maybe we could talk about conditioning as this database. It, it, it is a, a, a catalog of different patterns that you recognize based on your actual experience of recognizing patterns. It is a catalog of the way that you've responded in the past to the arising of these same patterns and conditions, and it's a catalog of the outcome of those responses. And in the moment that they arise, we see the patterns that we can recognize and, and we formulate a choice about what to do about it based on our, our experience of choosing and the outcome. We have the capacity to um, uh, evaluate what the potential future outcome could be from uh, taking an action. But if we haven't uh, um, opened to the possibility of different kinds of actions, that perspective limits us in terms of how we choose. Is that making sense? So that we recognize the pattern of situation and we're immediately in touch with all of the ways that we've responded to that in the past. And then in trying to get a certain outcome, we make a choice about how we respond to it. In doing so, we may miss dozens of other possibilities that might be uh, the result of a different kind of action in the same situation. If we lose track of the conditions of the present moment and slip into the past, then we will actually just be reenacting uh, a past situation. You know, if you have addiction, um, what is the axiom that they say, um, um, taking the same action, expecting a different outcome, some version of that? that we get stuck into these ruts, or uh, in Buddhism we call it samsara, the conditioned response to events. <clears throat> and what we want to do is have enough spaciousness that we recognize that that's what's happening, uh, that, that those are the past responses, and then to begin to imagine the, a different possibility. So if 
you, your conditioning, which is your actual experience, right? You're not making this up. Your conditioning is based on what actually happened to you. If in the past you were only allowed to have the crumbs that fell onto the floor, then you don't see that there's a chair at the table. You don't take your seat at the table. You wait for the things to fall onto the floor to pick them up as a metaphor. Um, if, and we were talking about this outside earlier, the conditioning is that, um, I think I was talking about this last week, maybe not, but my conditioning is such that in relationships I expect to be betrayed, I expect to be publicly humiliated, and I expect to be abandoned. And in every relationship, it's, my mind is moving through that. How is this going to happen and what do I need to do to protect myself from this? But there's no obligation for the current uh, um, moment to respond to me the way that my dad responded to me when I was a kid, which is where that view comes from. Um, but the conditioning is there. And if I don't impede it and choose something differently in that moment, I'm stuck with the, with the scenario. You know. I look at somebody who's attractive to me, and in my imagining, it's a horrible divorce at the end. It isn't, you know, a wonderful life together. Well, oh, quickly! It's just a murderous <laughs> divorce. So you can see how inhibiting that might be. Hi, I know you're going to ruin my life. Let's go, right? <laughs> Can we get it over by 8.30? There's a show I want to watch. Um, <laughs> so what's, what we begin to do then, and of course in, in our meditation practice, is become aware of our conditioning, aware of these thought processes. How do we fixate the world? How do we fixate other people? Who glows? I mean, the the um, we talk about the glow or what makes people look attractive to us. It's, there isn't a universal attraction. There's our conditioned response to, to other people, and it isn't just how they look. It's the whole whole presentation which the unconscious is largely identifying. Uh, the unconscious mind recognizes the pattern of the way somebody. Uh, operates in the world and evaluates that. That's what we've been doing since we were children is reading people and evaluating our, our degree of safety with them. If we can, if we recognize in somebody's presentation the quality of care that we got when we were children, the eyes dilate and they glow. That's actually what happens. We actually have a physical recognition that they're likely to provide the same kind of care as we got, and then our eyes dilate, which lets more light in. So they glow, but it also washes out everybody else, right? They all disappear into the, into the glow. If you got crap care, understand you're recognizing crap care. If you got really good care, then you're recognizing really good care. So there's an evolutionary shortcut in this, that you can walk into a room and look around and see people who are likely to provide for you 
the care that you got. And if you got good enough care, that's a great uh, 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 shortcut in, in terms of, of who to introduce yourself to, who to put your social energy into. We should all ask out least attractive people. <laughs> <laughs> Did you <laughs> have you noticed that the glow doesn't last? That's true. Um, so what you want to do is to um, begin to understand who you want, what kind of care you want, and then evaluate whether that person actually will provide that care for you, and understand that you're going to have to pay them for doing it by taking care of them. So you want to pick somebody who you enjoy taking care of because a lot of intimate relationships is caretaking, right? That's what you're basically doing. You're taking care of your caregiver so that they will be available to take care of you. That's the bargain, right? And if you burn out your caregiver, uh, they, they won't be available to take care of you. So that the, some of these codependent relationships are less stable because you burn out your caregiver and then they don't take care of you. So you have to go get somebody else to do it. Um, so, um, it is possible, I think, through practice to update these working models so that you can get your automatic picker to work again or to work in a way that's useful to you um, and uh, undo the old um, uh, conditioning uh, through practice. So if that's interesting, maybe in the next few months we'll, we'll do some of that. I'm going to go and do some training with Dan Brown about doing these kinds of trainings. He um, is a Tibetan practitioner, so these are based on a, a Mahamudra practice, which is a Tibetan deity practice where you visualize a um, deity and you investigate self versus no self by creating a representation of yourself as the deity and uh, identifying so strongly in the visualization of the deity that you become the deity. So it's a unitive practice where you become the deity, but in becoming the deity, you lose uh, your sense of self. And so you see into the insubstantiality of the self-identification because you see that you can replace it with something else. So it, it'll be an interesting thing to do to bring in a, a different kind of, of practice because there really isn't in Theravada Buddhism anything quite like that. Um, but I wanted to talk about mindfulness of uh, breathing. Uh, mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out, or mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. According to this quote from the Pali Canon, every time we note the breath moving in and out, as in out, we feel the touch of the air and are aware of body consciousness. Thus, awareness of the breath amounts to an awareness of touch. Uh, in chapter three, I explained how the observation of in and out breath can serve as an insight meditation. If we observe the breath, we experience it as a distension inside the nose. Uh, this is a correct understanding of the characteristics of the air element, the characteristics of distension.
we feel moving, movement or motion, this is correct uh, understanding of the function of the air element, the function of movement. And if we feel conveying, this is the correct understanding of its manifestation, the manifestation of conveying. If we see the separate units of the movement of the in and out breath as caused by the existence of the physical body, the nose, and the intention to breathe, this is the correct understanding of the cause of its arising, referred to as he abides contemplating the body, its nature of arising. If we see the separate units of movement of the breath disappear or that the breath cannot appear without the physical body, the nose, and the intention to breathe, this is the correct understanding of the cause of its vanishing, referred to as where he abides contemplating the body, uh, contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing. Uh, if we note in out with each breath, we do not take this process to be a person, a being, a woman, a man, me, or mine, but we see and understand it as a mere collection of movements that are felt, and as it is said, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him. The abdomen rises and falls as a result of in and out breath. By noting this as arising and falling, we are aware of tightening, loosening, or distending. This is the correct understanding of the characteristic of the air element. If we are aware of movement or conveyance, this is the correct understanding of the function uh, and man the manifestation of the air element. If we see the arising and falling movements of the ab abdomen appear and disappear in separate units, it is the correct understanding of arising and vanishing. In other words, we should perceive the actions and movements of our body in accordance with the Pali passage. He understands accordingly, however, his body is disposed. In an ultimate sense, the, the rise and fall of the abdomen characterized by tension, pressure, or movement is the air element. It is considered part of the physical aggregate, the tangible object, the tangible object element, and the truth of suffering. Thus, uh, the arise and fall of the abdomen is clearly an appropriate ob object uh, for meditation for the development of insight. Moreover, it is obvious from the last verse above that any bodily action or movement can be taken as an object for insight meditation. There is no way that this view can be considered incorrect. In fact, it is in accord with the Buddha's teaching and is highly beneficial in a variety of ways. By practicing insight meditation, one acquires right view and true knowledge and the defilements based on ignorance can be abandoned and one can attain the end of unsatisfactoriness that is the fruit of arhatship and nirvana. I mention this point here not because the observation of the rise and fall of the abdomen is part of the practice with the in and out breath, but because the in and out breath itself produces the rise and fall of the abdomen. Actually, perception of the rise and fall of the abdomen uh, constitutes contemplation of the body since it is both a physical movement and one of the elements. It can also be considered awareness of mental objects since it is included in the physical aggregate, the basis of the physical sense and the truth of suffering. Did you think that in the uh, watching the breath that all of this uh, insight was available to you? <laughs> 
part where you're just bored out of your mind having to watch the fucking breath. <laughs> so Anapanusati is the, the in and out of the breath and the rising and falling is the awareness of the body. Um, uh, so he says here that the breath is an entire path all the way to arhatship and enlightenment. Um, most of the time we do other techniques because this uh, practice can be quite dry for a lot of people and also some people really can't be with the breath and just let it be. The, um, if, you've had, if you have a yoga practice or something like that where you've actually trained yourself to affect the, uh, the breath, it becomes very difficult to break that uh, training. Um, but tonight we're going to do a whole period of practice around just watching the breath, and noting in-breath and out-breath. <clears throat> if you pay attention, um, there's a lot of things that happen for the in and out of breath to happen. Uh, the diaphragm releases, um, well, the diaphragm contracts with the in-breath, the muscles around the rib cage relax, you'll feel pressure in the lungs, air is drawn in through the nose and mouth, you can detect the temperature and the humidity of the air as it's drawn in, you can detect the weakening of the vacuum pressure in the lungs, the chest rising, at a certain point the lungs will be full, the inward breath will end, there may or may not be a pause, and then the, the a diaphragm will relax, the muscles around the ribcage will contract, there's another pressure, but this time it's the, the pressing against full lungs, the air is pushed out, you can detect the humidity and temperature of the air as it's pushed out, which is likely to be different than when it came in. You notice the chest falling, the pressure dissipating, and then it, on the bottom of the breath there may or may not be a pause before the cycle repeats again. So it's a quite complex uh, operation. If you're going to do just watching the breath, which is around developing concentration, then the nose or mouth is better, it's a smaller object, it's easier to concentrate on, and then you're developing the aspect of concentration. If you wanted to pursue the insight aspect, then you would be watching the rising and falling of the belly and the awareness of all of the sensations that are in the body, as it said in the instructions. Is that making sense? <clears throat> so in the beginning, just see if you can keep your attention on the sensations of the breath without getting pulled away into thinking. If you notice that you get pulled away into thinking, come back to the breath. And then you can begin uh, exploring any of the three characteristics in the rising and uh, falling of the abdomen. Who's causing the rising and falling of the abdomen? Who's breathing is an investigation into uh, no self. Um, each breath cycle ends. So the in-breath ends, the out-breath ends. Uh, any of the sensations in the process of breathing end, so you'll notice a rising and passing in that. Um, how does it feel to be in the body, uh, which is a way into exploring the unsatisfactoriness of the body itself? Um, so. And then, We'll see um, how it is to sit for a long time 
just doing breath, because since we usually do much more elaborate and uh, entertaining meditation strategies, mostly because they're more entertaining than the breath and it's easier to engage them. Um, I'm good, thank you. So how did that go? Laser sharp awareness of the sensations of the breath the whole time, no interruption. easier to not be controlling it if I was to, because this seems more like like effect, like I breathe in my shoulders and my chest goes up. Mm -hmm. Here and here it seems more like I'm the cause of the breath moving. Good. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I know once you mentioned that the brain consciousness is analog, and uh, sometimes I have an experience in which I, I'm fully aware of the breath, but there's also the background, almost fully aware of background uh, mental states. Um, is that possible or is that an illusion? Well, it's probably a rapid back and forth, since we can really only do one thing at a time. Or you're expansive in, in your awareness rather than contractive and narrow, you know, the two. Sometimes there's a, a fighting or a sort of, it's sort of like a pulling of attention, but you don't quite go. But that would be wi a wider object, I would think. The idea that we can do more than one thing at a time in consciousness is actually not a well-perceived perception of what's happening. But we can go back and forth really fast. So I noticed that um, when I would take an in-breath, um, there would just be an expansiveness that would occur from that. That would be quite the um, sensation-wise a lot more prominent than the breath, and then the same with breathing out, and 
on even on top of that first wave, there'd be an additional, and then uh, there's just sort of lots of lots of that, and then the breath just seemed so inconsequential and mm -hmm. seemed like a just very tiny. So it's kind of a flow state. Yeah, that, definitely. Um, but I kind of managed to keep coming back to my breath, and so, but but it's like as I was focusing on the in and out, there was breathing that was occurring else. What like it's it, the breath before hadn't it didn't go away. <laughs> the resonance of the breath. So then it just kind of expanded on top of each other. And, uh, I, I forgot how interesting it was to do breath stuff. It does kind of take you somewhere different. Mm -hmm. Cool. <laughs> uh, breath is a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As if, uh, but then understanding that you need to breathe to get to a point of realizing that, you know, the breath does sustain the body. Mm -hmm. But then doing the counting of uh, in-breath out all the way out before the mind engages on to count and then trusting that the breath will continue disengages the counting mind. Like, you notice when you start doing the counting practice years ago, it'd be like, in and you're already counting. You're worried that you're going to miss it. <laughs> and then now when you realize that, you watch it go in and completely out. And then you're inviting almost your conscious mind to be like, okay, it's time mm -hmm. to count. You know, so then you start lengthening, letting go of the conscious counting. And then you realize breathing just breathes on its own. Yeah. Or you know, and then at that point going to like meta practice mm. is much easier to just allow it, like the feeling of meta, not the what you think compassion is, but true like, oh, this might be it. It's not the, the love that you think about mm. or want, you know. Because we think we want, like, oh, this is how compassion has to feel. You'll see those kind of mind states arise. And mm. like, well, it's just this, like, this is not, you know, there's nothing to it. All that other stuff is just the self, the opinion of what that is. So it all comes out of that breath practice of just breathing. And then you're just like, fuck, just to not breathe. That's a different practice. So you have to get equanimous <laughs> with apoxia. That's great. <laughs> the Sorya, one of Shinzen's uh, uh, colleagues, uh, studied in a monastery in, in Japan where the object of the practice was to, to breathe as few times as you needed to. And uh, so that the, I think he was breathing four times a minute or something like that. You notice the shallowness, like it's almost as if it's not there at all. It's so shallow, you know. I've heard that before too. Like I 
was practicing following my breath and then it would just confuse me for a while, but it got to a state where it was like, I was following it in my diaphragm where like, well, first, I feel like the first phase was like following into my diaphragm and then I was, wasn't sure if I was controlling it or not. And then I kind of, I think I surrendered to the doubt. And then there were, it would get so small that I would like feel like I wasn't gonna breathe. Like there would be a moment of like, no, I'm not gonna, like, like I forgot to breathe. And there was panic there. And this time I tried to practice concentration with it. And I kind of just accepted that, I mean, it was painful and I hated the whole sin. Like, <laughs> but, but the, the, the happy kind of pain. Yeah, the happy kind of pain. There are moments where I almost feel my face kind of smile because I was like, oh, this. <laughs> but, but how sh accepting how shallow my breath actually is. I'm like, that, that's kind of a, that's my breath, I guess. Like, that's it. It would just come in through my nose and then hit the back of my throat and then kind of come back out. And then it would change sometimes, but really it was just shallow. And, mm. Okay, that's okay. I'm going to sit more on retreat by about day seven. Just um, my breath being so much slower. Um, and not deeper, but just um, not breathing in and out as much. Just almost like. Everything was just, I don't know how to describe it, but almost like, almost like a very, not a need to, to breathe as much, not intentional, just naturally got to that place where it was, oh, like, just, oh, it's maybe time to, to take a breath at this moment. Yeah. Am I experiencing Maybe it's because we're less greedy. <laughs> Good. All right. Uh, this is deepening your practice. Uh, so I'm always going to be advocating ways to deepen your practice. The next uh, retreat that we're offering is in December in California. Uh, which will be up at the Seven Circles Retreat Center. It's a 10-day retreat. And that uh, I think the if the registration hasn't opened yet, it will open soon. It's a small retreat center so that it, it's likely to fill up. So take a look at it if that's interesting to you. Um, the website is metagroup.org. I am going to be doing a, a retreat out e on the East Coast in Brooklyn in November. It's a weekend retreat. We're trying to have one retreat a year, which is Donna-only, so this is going to be a Donna-only retreat, and we're going to see if we can get uh, people to come to it, and then next year, if it's if we do it, we'll do it for a week or two weeks on a Donna basis. Donna basis means you can pay whatever you want to come to the retreat. Most of the other retreats that we do have a, have a, a charge for them. I am going to be doing an, uh, a Meaningful Life Intensive starting on August 2nd. There's some flyers out there for that, and there's some spaces in that that are uh, open. Uh, the Meaningful Life class is using uh, um, basic Theravada 
Buddhist meditation to explore uh, your attachment conditioning. So looking at uh, the Bulby attachment uh, theory, uh, ways in which con conditioning forms your response to self and world. Uh, and this is the first level of training, so um, flyers are out there. Um, the classes here are offered on a dana basis. The dana is the Pali word for generosity. The suggested dana for the class is $20. If you are really well resourced and $20 doesn't mean that much to you, then consider giving at a level that does have meaning to you. If $20 is a good level, give it that level. If it's too much, give it uh, at a level that's uh, commiserate with your resources. But do consider each time you come giving something so that you can support um, uh, the ongoing class. It's really appreciated. Um, cash out there in a bowl. I can also take uh, cards if you have that. Uh, and then we'll see you next time. Thank you.